Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Awesome. Hey, good morning. Welcome to church. It's great to have you here with us today. You can wrap up those conversations and talk after the service again. It's our ninth birthday, so we got a heap of cake, so make sure you grab some cake on your way out. But hey, I just want to echo Andrew's and Casey's welcome this morning. It's great to have you in church with us today. It is Palm Sunday, so we're starting off our Easter story today, which is going to be really excited. But if I haven't met you before, my name is James or Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here at Gateway Ormo. I'm married to my beautiful wife, Sophie, in the front row over here. And together we have an adorable little uh, baby girl called Zoe. She's just turned eight months Uh, recently, and we absolutely love her to bits. But there's been a lot in my life that has changed since I've had a a baby, right? If I'm being completely honest, before I was a dad, I didn't actually do a whole lot of reading, yeah? It wasn't something that I enjoyed doing. It wasn't something I'd do in my spare time or, or anything like that. You know, I'd read my Bible and I'd read the bare minimum of whatever textbooks I had to read to get through university. But that was essentially the only reading I'd ever do. But now that I'm a dad, I found myself in the unknown a lot, right? I found myself having a lot of questions. How do you keep your child quiet in church? That sort of question like that. <laughs> no, and so I haven't, I haven't actually, if I'm being honest, I haven't started reading a whole lot more, but I have started reading a whole lot more articles like how-to blog posts sort of stuff, you know, what does this behavior mean? What's the next development stage? What, what do I have to be doing a parent? Well, what is sleep regression and how can I get rid of it from this world? Like those sorts of blog posts, right? So I've been reading a whole bunch of that and um, to be honest, it's been really enlightening for me because I've, I've learned a, a whole lot. But, um, but I'm recently, I'm going to put a photo up on the screen in just a second. It's not a photo of Zoe, because I don't want to embarrass her when she gets older. And it's actually quite hard to get this sort of photo in action. But they've got a photo here right now. And this is a face we're seeing a whole lot in our household at the moment, right? Zoe, it's not Zoe, but she pulls the exact same face with the curved lips and the, the bottom lip perking out, poking out. And you can't hear it right now. That's actually a really loud face as well, okay? And so we're seeing a whole lot of that face. And I know it looks sad and it looks heartbreaking, and it breaks your heart, but the reality is, is that that's just the face that Zoe's been pulling when she doesn't get what she wants, <laughs> right? That's the face she pulls when she doesn't get what she wants, and I'm, only, I'm told that it's only going to get louder, it's only going to get more inconvenient, it's only going to get um, more intense as she gets older, but at the moment, she's pulling that face a lot, and it's the face that she, it's the face she pulls when she doesn't get what she wants, and, and for me as her dad, I've actually found it really hard to combat this face. Right, it's really hard for me to change this face. All of my attempts are, are generally um, met with kicking and, and screaming and, and crying and, and hands just flying everywhere. It's actually a really hard thing for me to combat this face. And the saying, um, spit the dummy, has never had as real a meaning to me as it does at the moment, right? I didn't know that babies actually spit the dummy. I just thought it was like a figure of speech or something you phrase when someone's throwing a tantrum. But Zoe actually spits the dummy out of her mouth and it will go flying, like with some force. And it's just so that she can cry a little bit louder. And I'll tell you what, it is awesome. (laughs) No, it's it's incredibly frustrating. And so this spit the dummy was an epiphany in itself for me, but really there's not much that I can do to fix this face. I'll make silly faces myself, right? I'll pull silly sounds like... Like, I'll try and do whatever I can to try and distract her from whatever's making her tantrum, but there's just not much that I can do. And, and then Sophie walks into the room, and Sophie picks Zoe up, and instantly, 
Like, just like that, the crying stops, and there's a big smile. <laughs> right? Or there's a heap of laughter. The screaming stops, and Zoe's giggling. And for me, I've just spent the last 10 minutes pulling out all of my dad tricks that I can do, and, and I've barely even silent, I've barely even quieted the crying, right? I can't do anything. And then Sophie, all she has to do is come, walk in the room, and pick Zoe up, and she's happy again. That's all it takes, and, and that is frustrating. But you know, I've read about it, and I've read all my articles and my blog posts about it, and apparently it's normal. It's really unfortunate, but apparently it's normal. Attachment is a real thing, and I'm told that I won't feel this way about it when she becomes attached to me later in life. But attachment and tantrums are a normal part of life, right? Kids throw tantrums because they don't have the words to convey how they're feeling. And so they have to try and convey it in the only way they know, which is crying and screaming and making a whole lot of noise. And so one of the articles that, that I've been uh, reading recently has explained it really quite clearly to me. And essentially it's saying that as infants or babies, they're generally used to their parents meeting all of their needs. And, and I know that's not always the case, and it's really disappointing, but this is just how the article's putting it, is that, that babies and infants are used to having all of their needs met. But as they grow and as they develop, they start to have these things called wants as well, right? So they have their needs and they have their wants. They're born with their needs, they develop their wants, but the baby doesn't know how to differentiate between what it needs and what it wants, right? And so it has trouble and, and the child is so used to having their parents meet all of their needs that they're expecting the parent to also meet all of their wants. And when, and when mum or dad says, actually, no, <laughs> you're not going to get that, you're not going to get what you want, that is when we get a tantrum, right? And I know tantrums there's a, whole, there's a whole lot of factors behind tantrums. This is just one of them, but this is so real in our household at the moment, right? So Zoe is, she's just eight months, she's just started sitting up and she started crawling and she loves it. And so we're super proud of parents, it's fantastic. She's into our pot plants, our house is actually going to have to change a whole lot in the next little while, but she's sitting up and she's crawling around, she's having the time of her life and she's really enjoying it, but she just wants to do it all of the time, right? She wants to sit up and crawl all day, and all night. And so, as parents, we're like, Zoe, actually, what you need to do is sleep. Please sleep. <laughs> and so, so, we'll get her ready for bed, right? We'll feed her, we'll make sure she's changed, we'll sing her a, a, a lullaby or something like that, we'll put her down for bed and, and we'll leave her to go to sleep, saying, Zoe, what you need is sleep. And we'll come back 10 minutes later, hoping that she's asleep, but no, she's sitting upright in her bed, she's giggling to herself, she's crying, she's doing whatever, but she's not asleep, as if to say to us, actually, mum and dad, I don't need sleep. What I need to do is play and crawl around and, and just enjoy my own company. And when, as, as parents, it's our role, as Zoe gets older, to help her differentiate between her wants and her needs. Zoe expects all of her wants to be met, and sometimes... If I'm being honest, she can be a little entitled in the way that she expects them to be met. And I know you're probably thinking, all right, James, we've ranted about Zoe's tantrums and stuff like that. It's Palm Sunday. When are we going to get into the message? But the reality is, is that I actually think sometimes, really unfortunately, we can sometimes have that uh, expectation of entitlement in the way that we interact with God. You know, it is Palm Sunday, and we're, we're going to get into that story in just a moment. But if I'm being honest, when I look at that story... This is almost the same attitude that I see in some of the Jewish people at the time as well. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, why don't you turn with me to uh, John 12, 12. This is where we're going to see Jesus enter into the town of Jerusalem, and he's actually welcomed as the king 
right? People are laying down their coats and they're laying down, their palm, uh, laying down palm fronds for him to walk across, to honor him. And that's why it's called Palm Sunday, obviously. But if you've got your Bibles with me, John 12, 12, it says, The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. All right, so we get a picture of what's happening. And now, this isn't actually necessarily a new scene to the Roman world. Now, it's common for this sort of welcoming for a king or, or for a, a commander who's returning from battle, right? It's, it's, it's normal for these people to come out and lay down their palm fronds, lay down their coat, uh, coats and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, they would welcome that person as a rescuer, as a protector, and they would celebrate the victory. And, and that's essentially what's happening here with the Jews, except the victory hasn't happened yet, right? There's an expectation of what Jesus is going to do, but he's not entering as a war hero, He's not entering as someone who is victorious. The Jews are an oppressed people group. So get this picture. The Jews are an oppressed people group, and then there's this guy walking in on a donkey, not a horse, not a stallion, nothing like that. There's a guy walking in on a donkey, and they're giving him the welcome of a war hero. Right? He hasn't even done anything yet. And to make the picture a little bit weirder, they actually have an expectation of this guy to release them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. Right? It's a crazy thought, and, and as I read the scripture, what's running through my head is, Why? You know, what's the motivation behind what's going on in this circumstance? Why do they have this expectation of this guy? And, and to kind of get an understanding of that, we need to look at the context of the Scripture. And, and so the entire chapter before this, Jesus' uh, friend Lazarus has actually died and passed away, and, and Jesus, is, Jesus has raised him up from the grave. He's raised him from the dead. And so that's what's happening in the chapter before this. And then, so we see in John chapter 12, verse 9, before just where we read, it says, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For an account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. You know, the crowd was going out to see Lazarus as well. And so the town where uh, Lazarus has died, where he's been raised, is a small town outside of Jerusalem called Bethany. And so this town has maybe 5,000 people in it, right? And so when Lazarus dies, the whole town's involved in that mourning process. The whole town's involved in that. And then as Jesus comes a couple of days later and resurrects Lazarus, the whole town is joined in the celebration of that as well. And it just so happens that after that's happened, the next day is actually the start of the Passover week. And so a bunch of these people from Bethany are heading into Jerusalem for the week. And, and so that's why we get this. And they're expecting Jesus to be there as well. And so that's why we get this sort of welcome. Because they've seen this guy. Yeah, he hasn't conquered Rome yet, but he has conquered death. Right? We've seen him conquer death. He claims that he's the Son of God. So surely Rome must be next. You know, the Israelites are used to being an oppressed people group, but that doesn't mean that they like the oppression, right? They were slaves to Egypt, but eventually they're released, and 
and with God, they form their own kingdom and, and they get to live like that for a little while. There's ups and there's downs and eventually they split into two separate nations and the Assyrians come through and, and do their, their sort of stuff and then the Babylonians come through and kind of send a bunch of them to exile as well and, and it's during a period of exile and slightly after that that we actually get a heap of the prophetic writings talking about the coming of the Messiah and we get a heap of that prophetic work and, and that's why Jesus is riding on a donkey to, f- to fulfill some of those prophecies by Zechariah and Isaiah and all that sort of stuff. So he's riding on that and the Israelites or the Jewish people, they are, they are waiting for this Messiah because it's been written about for so long. Right? They've been waiting for this Messiah. And if you want some interesting reading, I'd encourage you to go and read about the intertestamental period. It's kind of the, the story between the Old Testament and the New Testament Right, and there's this, there's this part in it where there's the Maccabean rule, which, which we call it, and it's this awesome part where eventually, eventually some of Judah get their land back and they start to govern themselves, and, and it's a time of, of prosperity, and they're like, hey, this might be what God's promised, and then the greatest empire to ever live, the Roman Empire, builds up and they actually conquer them, and then they're back in, um, they're back in oppression and they're back in uh, Roman occupation, and so they're disappointed again. They've been conquered, and it's not what was promised, and, and so disappointed, the Israelites are still waiting on their Messiah. And here comes someone saying that he is the Son of God, saying that he is the Messiah, and you know what? He's actually got the miracles to back it up. You know, he's raising people from the dead. He's doing a whole bunch of really cool stuff, and so it makes sense that the Savior's next logical step is to free the Jewish people from the Roman rule so they can be restored to their former glory. The Jewish people have an expectation of what Jesus is going to do. They have an expectation on him to fulfill. And and to be honest, I reckon they feel a little entitled in the way they expect it to be done. But as the story goes on, Jesus doesn't actually rescue them from Rome. He doesn't conquer them or anything like that. Instead, he's arrested. And the Jewish people see their savior, their war hero, arrested. And you know what? He actually doesn't resist. You know, he doesn't put up a fight or anything like that. There's no incredible feat of strength. There's nothing necessarily worthy of a hero that's happening in there. And so they get really disappointed. This doesn't make sense. You know, this guy is the guy that was meant to, to, to come and save us. What a disappointment he's turned out to be. And so they turn on him and they kill him. But, you know, looking back, we can see that they just didn't get it, right? They couldn't see the whole picture. They didn't understand what was happening. They thought, they thought that what they wanted was what they needed, and they felt entitled to it. But they'd gotten the two mixed up. They'd gotten the want and the need mixed up. And, and what did they do? They throw a tantrum, and they kill Jesus. They kill Jesus. Now, it's all part of a, pan, a plan for salvation through grace, But the Jewish people were blinded by their entitlement. And I think sometimes in our culture today, we can also be blinded by the delusion of our own entitlement. We're blinded by the delusion of entitlement. Now, when I think of the word entitlement, there's a couple of things that come to mind. But the foremost is like some young, rich person, right, born with a silver spoon, kind of a trust desk fun sort of, sort of type deal, the sort of person who thinks they're better than everybody else because their parents are in a position of wealth or power, right? That's what I think of when I think of someone who's entitled. That's exactly what I think of. But the reality is, I think the attitude of being entitled is actually just us feeling like we deserve something better. You know, like feeling like you're owed something. And if someone has a sense of entitlement, it means that they believe they are deserving of certain 
privileges. And if I'm being honest, I actually think we live in a culture of entitlement at the moment. We actually feel like we're owed something. And, you know, this doesn't happen overnight. This is not an instantaneous thing. It's not any one person. It's reason that I reckon we live in a culture of entitlement. I actually think there's two really key reasons. The first is that for so long, we've lived in abundance. Right? We've had everything that we could ever need. And we've had more than that. We've had everything that we could ever want, almost. Right? So we live in a time of abundance. And I think when we have all of that stuff, it actually starts to lose its value to us. And we begin to take stuff for granted. And, and we begin to not appreciate what we have as much. You know, the second thing I reckon our entitlement stems from is, is a disconnection. I guess we're, we're the connected generation, and instantly and uh, constantly we can contact people all across the globe through, through whatever platforms, and we can keep up to date with what's happening in someone's life based on what they put on their feed. But I reckon the reality is, is that that's actually a disconnected type of connection. There's no direct connection happening through that. And, and so I think when it comes to community or fostering a sense of community, often we don't actually realize the impact that we have on each other. I think we're disconnected in that sense. We don't realize how our needs and, and how our wants influence others. There's not an awareness on, of our impact on others and their impact on us. I think it's so easy for us to just be really narrow-minded and thinking, hey, I'm going to do this because it's going to have this outcome for me, and not actually think about the context of what it's going to do in the community around you. I reckon that's because of a disconnection. Right? We're disconnected. I think it's so easy for us to just expect everything to happen and everything to work without us actually understanding how or why it does. I reckon we don't realize how our needs and how our wants influence others. And you know, when I first moved out of home and I moved cities at, at 18, it was an incredible shock for me. It was an incredible shock. I had no idea what I was doing. I got to live under my parents and I knew that they did a lot for me. But I also knew that they'd prepared me, right? I also knew that I knew how to do everything I needed to do, and, and my parents had prepared me for that, but it was still a shock because I wasn't ready for the, like, the consistency of life, right? Life just keeps on going. And here I was, living by myself, having to do everything all of the time. I was only used to doing some stuff some of the time, and now I had to do everything all of the time. And if I'm being honest, there's a couple of things that slipped in my life, right? So... I'm not great at washing. I never liked doing washing, but I would wash all of my clothes diligently because I didn't want to be smelly when I was out and about as a young teenager. And, and so I'd wash all of my clothes diligently, but it felt like I was always, always just by the washing machine and hanging stuff out. And so some of my washing would kind of fall to the bottom of the pile, right? And so I'm a sweaty 18-year-old boy, and actually, I think I maybe slept on the same sheets for maybe six months one time, and, and it was absolutely disgusting. But I just wasn't ready for the consistency and the constant nature of life, and I hated doing the washing, and I was doing it here, and so it dropped here. I just wasn't ready for it. You know, my parents had taught me how to do the washing, but they'd helped me along the way, and, and I just wasn't ready for it. You know, I wasn't ready to have to prepare three meals a day every single day. Like, that really took its toll on me. And so often I'd, I'd skip meals, I mean, really regularly I'd skip meals, and, and if I was smart, I'd make one meal for, like, lunch, and then I'd kind of span it out across the next three meals, so I'd have, like, a salad at lunch and, you know, a steak, sausages or something for dinner and then leftovers for breakfast. <laughs> Soph knows that's not true. I never made myself salad, let's be honest. <laughs> it was steak and sausages and maybe a side of McDonald's. <laughs> 
I just wasn't ready for the consistency of it, right? I wasn't prepared for how constant it was going to be. I wasn't aware of how much I'd have to do or, or how much I would have to do it, and it was an absolute shock. But you know what? Not only did this season cure my, cure my, my, my need for messiness, like I hate messiness now, I can't stand it, but it actually created in me a heart of gratitude. You right? It created in me a heart of gratitude. Now, I was able to survive because I have an innate ability to live like a grub and because I have an incredibly patient and kind girlfriend at the time who's now my wife. But what it made me do is it made me realize how much good stuff I had going for me when I was living at home and it actually gave me an attitude of gratitude. And I reckon in this Easter season, God might be wanting to do that for some of us here as well. He might be wanting to remind us of what he has done so that we can take on a fresh mindset of gratitude and reset the delusion of entitlement in our lives, you know, replace it with gratitude. I think God is wanting to replace our entitlement with gratitude. You know, the hard thing is, is that entitlement doesn't always lead to gratitude when we realize that. It doesn't always lead to it. Now, when I was living at home, I'd become so used to and I'd become entitled to a certain lifestyle, right? I had a beautiful bed. It was really comfy. We had a fantastic couch that I could nap on during the day and watch TV, watch the sports, play my video games. My parents had bought me a computer for school. It was fantastic. I always had the right clothes for every single occasion. And I just kind of become used to this lifestyle, right? And then I move out and suddenly I don't have any of that stuff anymore. You know, my, my bed's a mattress on the floor. <laughs> my couch is falling apart. It's flaking and it's leaving pieces of couch everywhere. My TV barely turns on and it's, it's one of those really deep ones. It makes a sound when you turn it off. And so I'm just, I'm not having what I'm used to having. And, and this time, instead of giving me an attitude of gratitude when I've realized that, I actually began to play the comparison game, Right? I began to look at some old friends who were still living at home and, and get really frustrated that they seemed to be living life in comfort, and here I was, struggling. You know, I would look at my friends who were further along in life than me and, and just get angry because it seemed so easy for them. But it wasn't for me. It was really hard for me. And, and so I started playing the game of comparison. I reckon that is where entitlement is fed. And I was so entitled and believed that I deserved all of these things. I deserved a good bed. I deserved this because I'd moved out of home and I was becoming a man and an adult now. But the reality is, is that I just hadn't done anything to deserve them. And so I ended up throwing myself a pity party, right? It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. But the fact was, all of my physical needs were being fulfilled. I was just getting worked up with what I wanted rather than what I needed. And I started throwing a tantrum myself. Now, the game of comparison can be tricky because it feeds our entitlement. We can look at what other people have and get jealous, telling ourselves, you know, I've worked as hard as them, I've done as much of them as them, but I deserve what they've got, you know, I actually need it. It's the internal monologue that we can have. You know, Jesus actually tells a parable of a, 
of a farmer. Um, where is it? He tells a parable in Matthew 20 about a landowner who goes out and, and hires some workers for his vineyard, right? So he needs some work done in his vineyard. So really early in the morning, he goes into the marketplace and, and he hires a couple of people and he says, hey, I'm going to pay you one Daenerys for a day's work. Will you come work for me? They say, yes, it's all going good. They're working. But it gets to nine o'clock and, and the landowner is actually like, you know what? I don't think I have enough workers here. I need to go get more. So he goes out and he gets more and, and he gets more at different occasions across the day, all the way to 5 p.m. So there's people out there only working one day. And he says to them, hey, you know what? I'm going to pay you what is just. I'm going to pay you what is right. And so at the end of the day's work, the, the landowner comes and, and he pays the people who've worked the last first. Right? And he pays them one denarius, the same as he promised the people who'd worked the whole day. And, and so the people who've worked all day, they're getting excited, right? Like, this is what we were told we we're going to get. But man, these guys got it. They worked for an hour. How good is what we're going to get but then the landowner comes to them and, and he actually just ends up paying them the exact same amount, exactly what was promised. He ends up paying them the one Daenerys. And so the workers from the morning, they aren't happy and they complain that it's not fair. And, and I think so often we can become like that with God. Right? We can forget what he's promised us and get caught up in what we're seeing and get caught up in what we see him doing for those around us. I think often our internal, in our internal monologue, we can forget all that God has done for us and, and become blinded by the delusion of our entitlement. Saying, God, I've done this, I've done that. Why haven't you blessed me like you've blessed such and such over there? God, I've worked hard. I've stewarded my money well. I've been teacher. I've followed everything that you've called me to do. But still, I haven't seen breakthrough. Now, I've respected my bosses, but still, I haven't gotten that promotion. I've cared for my family, my spouse, my friends, and, and I've kept you the center of my relationship, but still, I face heartbreak. Now, I'm constantly serving you, God. I'm there every week at church. I'm setting up chairs. I'm cleaning toilets. I'm doing whatever you've asked me to do, but still, I'm waiting for you to move powerfully in my life. I think it's really easy for us to have that internal monologue. We feel like we do things for God, but then get frustrated when he doesn't respond in the way that we want him to. We begin to feel entitled to his blessing through merit. Yeah, but that's not the story of salvation. Salvation is a story of grace, right? It's the perfect gift that none of us deserve, but that we're all given if we believe. It's the blessing of grace. We keep on waiting on God to fulfill all of our wants, we keep waiting, blinded by the delusion of our entitlement and fail to see the blessing of grace, that Jesus has already fulfilled everything that we will ever need on that cross. And, and as we come into this Easter season and this time of Easter, I reckon it's an opportunity for us to shake off any of those feelings of entitlement. It's just time to stop being blinded by the delusion and fix our eyes on the perfect promise of a saviour. You know, the Savior who's paid the price for us and given us everything that we need. And I reckon in some way or form, there's a whole bunch of us today who need to remove that blindfold of entitlement. And I think there's a couple of things that we can do to remove it, yeah? I think firstly, you need to investigate your heart. The first step of removing and letting go of entitlement is recognizing its presence in your life. You need to investigate your heart. Are there, area in your are there areas in your life where you see jealousy creeping in? Are you, are, you finding that, are you finding that you're drawing comparisons between your life and someone else's? Do you feel resentment when someone else succeeds? 
Do you feel like you're more deserving than those around you? Is your internal dialogue ever counting or listing the things that you've done for people or that you've done for God just to be disappointed that God or someone else doesn't come through in the way that you would expect them to? You know, the first step is recognizing the presence of entitlement in your life, and often it's the hardest step. It's really hard to be honest with yourself, you know, especially if you feel like you're entitled for something because you've already done the reasoning in your head and, and you've determined that it's fair, right? You've determined that it's fair, and we all want stuff to be fair. We long for everything to be fair, but that's the beauty of grace. It's not fair. It makes life not fair. No one is deserving of God's grace. It doesn't, matter, it doesn't matter how many good things you do. It's the nature of sin, which we're all born into, that leaves us undeserving. And so what we need is grace. Now, you might want a whole lot of other things, but what you need is grace, and grace is unfair. It's unbiased. It's available to all those who believe. And now, once you've investigated your heart, maybe you've noticed the presence of entitlement, there, you don't stay inside. You don't stay internal. You've got to take it out. So you've got, to remember, you've got to remember God's heart. The second step of ridding yourself of entitlement is to remember God's heart. Now, I love the way that the psalmist writes around God's heart. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Have you ever contemplated what that means? I shall not want. I don't know about you, but for me, I find that my, in myself, I'm always wanting for something else. I'm always wanting for something greater, something better. But the psalmist is writing, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Like ever? You know, I shall not want. Won't want for anything. I don't know about you, but for me it seems huge. How is he able to say that? I won't want for anything ever again. You know, there's faith in that statement. There's, there's an expectation in that statement. There's no entitlement in it. There's no entitlement. The psalmist knows the good shepherd's heart. He knows that God always promises to love his children. He knows that God will never leave or forsake him. He knows that God will always sustain him. He knows that God is enough. He's able to fully and wholeheartedly trust that God will take care of his needs and that God will be there when he needs him. He knew that God would take care of him even in the valley of the shadow of death. You know, if God is really good, then we have everything that we'll ever need for in our life. We can, tr we can trust and rest fully content in the gifts that he chooses to give us and the gifts he chooses to withhold. Because we know that God is good and we know that, and, and that he knows even more than us what we need. He knows what we need. And in order to rid ourselves of entitlement, you need to cling to the promise that God loves you, God cares for you, and that God is good. Now, even when you don't get what you so desperately want, God is good. And I want to encourage us this morning that if you do sense that feeling of want in your life, to, to use it as an opportunity to turn to God to prayer. Turn to God in prayer. Give it to God. Remember God's heart. And finally, in order to rid ourselves of the delusion of entitlement, we need to imitate Jesus' heart. Now, Jesus is the only person who's ever been truly entitled. He didn't deserve to carry all of our sin and shame. Right? He didn't deserve to carry our guilt on that cross, but instead he chose to sacrifice himself for our eternal good. You know, Jesus was truly entitled, but as, but as Paul writes in Philippians 2, 6, 8, he didn't choose his entitlement. He didn't choose to use his entitlement or his equality with God as something 
for his own advantage. Instead, he made himself like us. He humbled himself by dying on that cross for you and me. And as followers of Christ, we should not only trust God when we don't get what we want, we should try and imitate the heart of Jesus and sometimes give up actually what we think we deserve. Yeah, that's hard. Entitlement is enticing, but, but when we choose to be like Jesus, the reward is so much greater. Humility and meekness aren't necessarily prized characteristics or virtues in today's culture, but they are truly beautiful in the eyes of God. We need to release our own expectations of God. His ways are far greater than our own. You know, I wonder if, as I've been talking here today, maybe you have been investigating your heart. Maybe you have been looking internally, and and like the Jewish people towards Jesus, you've allowed entitlement to blind what you're seeing. Just as the Jewish people didn't understand the power of Jesus' humility, they didn't understand the power displayed in giving up his entitlement, maybe you've been blinded by your own expectations of how your life should look. You've been so caught up in longing for your wants that you've forgotten that God has already fulfilled everything you will ever need. And maybe you're not looking for a strong savior or, or a hero to come and save you from the oppression like the Jews, but, but maybe you're just getting frustrated in the mundane. And maybe you're just getting frustrated in the day-to-day of, of following God, trusting God, but it's not working out the way you want it to. You know, the people celebrated the arrival of Jesus to, to Jerusalem because they had seen his power at work in the resurrection of Lazarus. And I wonder if maybe like the Jews, you've seen the power of Jesus at work in someone else's life. But now you're getting frustrated that you don't see it the same way in yours. I want to encourage this church to not hold on to that. Don't allow yourself to fall into the trap of comparison. Don't allow your ego to take hold. Don't allow it to have a louder voice than Jesus. Don't let it tell you that God owes you anything because he doesn't. He's given you everything you need. It's so easy for our internal monologue to be, God, I've worked hard. I deserve this. God, I've been to church every Sunday. I've been faithful. I've cleaned the toilets. I've stacked chairs. I've done absolutely everything that you have asked me to do. I've done so much for you. It's easy for us to be blinded by the delusion of our entitlement, to become complacent and forget that God has already given us everything we need. And so if you're here this morning and you've recognized that voice of ego or you recognize that maybe you've been blinded by entitlement, I believe God is wanting to remind you of the promises He has given you, to remind you of His grace, to remind you that you have everything you need in Him. I reckon, I believe that this morning that God is wanting to turn enlightenment into gratitude. He's wanting to remove the blindfold of entitlement and give you fresh eyes of gratitude. It's what He's wanting to do here this morning. And, and as we sing this next song, it's a song we sang earlier today, I want to encourage you to come out the front here, right? Our prayer team's going to be here. They'd love to pray with you. They'd love to pray a prayer of gratitude over you. They'd love to pray God's promises over you. So if you're here this morning and you, and you sense that bit of entitlement in your spirit, if you sense that ego saying, hey, God, I actually deserve this, the reality is God doesn't owe us anything. Everything he gives us is a gift. Now the goodness of his heart. And, and so if you're sitting in that entitlement this morning, if you're blindfolded by entitlement, I want to encourage you to come down the front here. We'd love to pray for you. Pray for a fresh eyes of gratitude. So come on, why don't we stand? We're going to sing this next song. 
We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.